Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. But just a few moments ago, Barack Obama had this to say. Let's listen. Given the strange and uncertain times that we are in, and they are strange, and they are uncertain, each day's news cycles bringing more head spinning and disturbing headlines. I thought maybe it would be useful to step back for a moment and try to get some perspective. He's speaking at a Nelson Mandela lecture event in South Africa. Uh, the words of uh, Barack Obama a few moments ago, your thoughts, Brad? Disgraceful. Uh, the fact that a former American president uh, on foreign soil would uh, say the comments he did about, uh, veiled comments, by the way, uh, not direct, about this president and, and the current state of American affairs. It, it's beyond the pale that the president would do that. <laughs> it's beyond the pale. So you're not going to get to hear the audio of the guy uh, who comes on afterwards who's a, you know, he's an Obama supporter. And he goes into this big, long tirade about all these things, which, you know, when you start your argument off uh, about President Trump by couching it and well, he's a racist, you're losing. You're losing because that's simply not true. It's demonstrably false, in fact. And so it, it basically derails the rest of the conversation because no one can take you seriously because you're dealing in these falsehoods. So we want to be able to engage on thorny issues and have discussions where we're not, we're not going to agree, but the discussion needs to be had because we learn a lot when we're talking to people that we disagree with. It is important to understand what liberals are, are observing what they think they see, what they what they feel are problems that can be handled in a certain way and what their solutions are. That's important. But if you're just going to stompy foot and, you know, suck your thumb and act as if this is all about racism, that's not serious. We can't we can't talk right now because we have other stuff we have to do. And you're just not being you're, you're not we can't we can't engage. It's just too much. You have to go back and regroup and come back when you're ready to have real chat. So you hear this discussion, and that was a Bush staffer ripping President Obama for saying we live in these so-called strange times. You know what's strange? It's strange that the Democrats can't seem to keep control of their party. So they've got the Democrats in the state of California rebuking Dianne Feinstein, who has been a consistent and reliable hard-left liberal who used to actually rail against illegal immigration because she thought it hurt working families in America. Now she thinks it's great that illegals have a right to be here and work and take the jobs from the working families who are American. She thinks that's great. She's been hard on the left, but she, you can never be leftist enough. And she's, she's learning now. You've got this, uh, what they call a jungle primary, where a bunch of different people are vying for the same seat. Dianne Feinstein won the seat, but the endorsement from the state party went to Kevin DeLeon. He actually received the endorsement because he reflects the increasing strength of the state's party, the state party's liberal core. And the liberal core was actually energized by the election of Donald Trump. They're mad. They're stompy foot. They, you know, they're clutching their pearls. They're ready to, to make a change. They want to resist. So DeLeon is a former state Senate leader from Los Angeles. He received 65% of the vote from about 330 members of the state party's executive board, more than the 60% that was needed to secure the endorsement. Now, the endorsement doesn't mean that he won the primary, but he won their endorsement. That is a serious problem for Democrats from California like Maxine Waters, Nancy Pelosi, and yes, Dianne Feinstein. Now, it's not clear that the endorsement will have a significant effect on the general election. Feinstein crushed DeLeon in the June primary, winning every county and finishing in first place with 44% of the overall vote. But this is a statement about who the party leadership wants to see in power. So Dianne Feinstein, she's been there a while, decades. She will be passing the baton. And this is who the party leadership is already telegraphing to the voters who they want the baton to go to, this hardcore leftist. The endorsement can come with hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign money, which the DeLeon campaign will have to help raise, as well as party volunteers and political organizing assistance. He needs that support to increase his odds of victory in November. Feinstein had $7 million in campaign cash socked away as of May, May 10th, 10 times what DeLeon had. But did... 
Ocasio-Cortez have the same amount of money as the guy she beat? Not at all. She beat that guy with one-tenth of what he had raised funds-wise. She had an active voter campaign, and she went and knocked those doors, and she had the viral online social media activity. And she beat him. So it's possible that DeLeon could go into November and beat Dianne Feinstein. I mean, these are some interesting times to be watching Democratic politics, admittedly. So then, speaking of Barack Obama and him fixing his mouth to go out and criticize somebody for lying, even when they've been found to lie, a guy who got PolitiFact's uh, four Pinocchios for the lie that he told about everybody's health insurance being $2,500 cheaper per year uh, after the passage of Obamacare, that was not only found to be a lie, it was like four Pinocchios is the most you can get. It was a total, utter, ball-faced lie that he repeated some some people say 41 times they found video of him on 41 separate occasions repeating that lie, even after he knew it wasn't true because uh, budget OMB had had run the numbers and they were like, this, this, that's not happening. Like everybody's paying more. And he was still running around saying that. Then you've got Hillary Clinton. And we talked about this just a smidge, um, her speaking to the American Federation of Teachers. And she started off by saying, I'm so tired, I can barely stand. But that is in reference to the introduction she was given by the head of the teachers union. She was tired because the lady had given her this 20 minute glowing. I mean, it was just like I was thinking to myself as I listened to some of it. I'm like, who's she talking about? Not Hillary Clinton. Yes, she was talking about Hillary Clinton. Just glowing introduction about how wonderful and Madam President this and that. So, yeah, it's real. It is real. So what did Hillary talk about to the American Federation of Teachers? Well, she went back in time where she didn't have any rights and she complained about it. She said um, she received the Women's Rights Award from the union. And then she basically spent all of her acceptance speech time talking about how she she didn't she was oppressed. She didn't have things that she deserved to have. When I was growing up, there were scholarships I couldn't get, colleges I couldn't attend, jobs I couldn't apply for just because I was a girl. Okay. You're 70. Like, so it was rough 70 years ago or 65 years ago. It was rough for everybody. She's complaining about scholarships she couldn't get. She grew up upper middle class. I could ask my mom, who is not as old as Hillary Clinton, but is definitely old enough to remember back when she was growing up and, you know, all of the the travails of growing up in the South. And it was Jim Crow South, separate but equal, I mean, how dare Hillary Clinton try to make everybody feel sorry for her, for her privileged upbringing, when all Americans were experiencing different forms of discrimination and all kinds of stuff going on all those years ago. That's what was happening back then. She's not special. I don't understand why people let her get away with that. Like, so you had it rough in Chicago's suburbs with your, you know, for your well-to-do parents and there were some scholarships you couldn't get? Wow. Okay. So... It's not very long ago, she says, the classified ads were divided into help wanted dash male, help wanted dash female. Um, she criticized girls half court basketball because back when she was a girl, girls played half court basketball and boys played full court like Hillary Clinton was a huge basketball player back then. Come on now. She said they wouldn't let us run on the full court. She fear-mongered about the Trump administration uh, nominating Judge Brett Kavanaugh. They've gutted funding for public schools and universities. Not true. Um, They've rolled back protections against discrimination for students. Not true. She even went into a lengthy broadside against Trump's policies. They're trying to rip the heart out of America. Really? Okay. They want to turn us into transactional units claiming Trump supporters want a man-eat-man, woman-eat-woman society. No, that's what the Democrats want. That's what the Democrats see when they see me walking into a store or into a building. They see, up oh, black woman, minority, victim. That's what they see. They don't know anything about you. You could be totally powerful and killing it in your personal life. And they look at you and they're like... She's black. She's obviously a Democrat. She's one of us. She understands the plight of the LGBTQ ETC community. No, I don't. I don't understand that at all. I'm a child of the king. I understand my positioning to be that of someone who is a bond servant to Jesus Christ, not to some demographic box or ideology that they've made up for me. So, you know, I'm tired of them saddling me with that. 
I'm tired of them saddling you with that. We are all capable of so many fantastic things. But as long as we're sitting up looking at each other and going, well, he's a white man. He's a part of the patriarchy. Hey, he's he's out to get me. Yeah. Anybody can get you if you think somebody who doesn't even know you is sitting up plotting to get you. You have some kind of narcissistic victim disorder. You have mental problems. You need counseling. You don't need to be told by Democrats that you can or can't do something. I mean, I defy anybody to figure out what it is that I'm actually doing when I'm not on this show. Like, how would you know what I'm working on? I could be working on total world domination or I could be spackling the ceiling in the foyer because we had a leak. How would you know? And why would I care? This, this, is, this is the problem. Most Americans, that's how they think. I'm doing what I need to do. I'm, I'm working on my to-do list. Could you please work on yours and stop worrying about whether or not I'm a victim? So she says they want to turn us against each other. They want to divide and conquer. At the conclusion of her wildly spurious statements, the union chicks and men applauded wildly. Yeah, they bought that. Don't buy it, folks. That none of that stuff is true. In fact, one of the so one of the stories that we didn't get to yesterday that I want to quickly just zip through right here in this last couple of minutes. And I'm sorry, I think I missed a caller. Um, if you want to call, uh, call into the show. We'll we'll definitely get you next segment. We actually have a show instead of a guest next segment. So if you want to call in 866-963-2037. Um, the National Guard deployment, remember when that was making news and all of the governors from the, the liberal states were like, we ain't sending no guard troops. We ain't going to support Trump. He's a dictator. And he's, he's this and he's that. He's a racist. Well, guess what? They still managed to get some troops down to the southern border. So remember, that was mid-April. And the, the ones who sent troops, um, the states that sent troops, they went down. And so the troops, when, when they activate the National Guard, it doesn't give them police capabilities. They're just basically active duty military. So when you swear in to the military, it's all other duties as assigned. So you swear in to support and def- defend the Constitution of the United States, to follow all lawful orders of officers placed above you, and any order or directive given to you by the commander in chief of the United States military, which is the president of the United States or any of his uh, subordinates. So any officer. And you also say, and all other duties is assigned, which basically encompasses everything they missed in those first few sentences. And so if you're an active guard or, or inactive guard and they activate you, or if you're on active duty and they say, we're deploying to the Southern border, you're going down there and you're going to do whatever they tell you to do. So what they've been able to do is they've been able to arrest 10,805 people since April, people who entered the country illegally, deportable alien arrests have been made by these National Guard troops who've been deployed to the border. Now, y'all know my my motto is enforcement is the deterrent. Laws that aren't enforced are not laws and they do not deter crime. Laws that are enforced deter crime. It is so simple. It's so basic. And I learned a lot about that from my father when he was on active duty as a police officer in the military since then. And if you talk to any person in law enforcement and they'll say any law that you don't enforce, it's basically not a law because as soon as people figure out that it's not being enforced, they're going to break it and they're going to break it and break it and break it and break it. And the, the minute they'll stop is when they see people start getting enforced fines, arrests, whatever the case may be, whatever the punishment is. If you enforce it, then people will pay attention. Not everybody. There's always going to be somebody who's going to break the law, but most people will follow the law if it's enforced. So you got the National Guard presence leading to the interception of more than 3,300 others who were turned back before they even set their juicy little toes into the United States. There are 1,601 National Guard troops at the border assisting with various surveillance, maintenance, and related operations, and the number could tick up considerably if the National Guard troops President Trump approved on April 4th are called in on a future request from CBP. I like it. I like it a lot. So we'll be back with more after these messages. Visit us online at StacyOnTheRight.com, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, AFR.net, and on our social media accounts. Hit the follow button. We'll be right back, y'all.
Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for a healthcare plan, or more importantly, if you signed up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have hundreds of thousands of members all across the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2.5 billion of each other's medical bills. Best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is about 500 bucks a month. Your savings may be less or more, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. Here's the number to find out more. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. Just hit star star 345. That's star star 345. Star Star 345. Hello, this is Bishop Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Beltville, Maryland. Jesus said you would do greater works than he did. We have been hearing all throughout this series is you and I need to trust the power of prayer. Paul said it this way, and I said it one night recently in talking. I found out that God, almighty God, is attracted to weakness. Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. And he said, I rejoice uh, in my weakness so that the, the grace of God, the power of God, the ability of God will tabernacle or rest on me. I want you to understand that God is waiting for somebody to get weak enough that they do what he says, not in their strength, but by the direction of God. He's waiting for somebody weak enough and simple enough. And I believe in a manner of speaking, the folks who've been greatly used of God in our generation have been common people, sometimes slightly eccentric, have some kind of little tick, some kind of little twist, some kind of little flaw in their character. And folk look at them after they get to know them well and go, ha, 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 Jackson, Bill, Jones, Smith. <laughs> No way in the world he could have done any of that stuff if God Almighty had not been with him. Join us this Sunday morning at 6251 Avondale Road in Beltsville or on the web at thehopeconnection.org. Spacey on the right. Senator, I think that, you know, the president in the past has said no one's been tougher on, on Russia uh, than, than I have been on, on Russia. And we know that, uh, you know, he's, he's stated that he'd like, like many past presidents, a reset with Russia. And he thinks it's, you know, the nuclear superpowers, be good to get along, be good to have someone, uh, you know, align with you because China is such an economic power. So I understand that. But just let me, in terms of actions, he increased the defense spending dramatically. That's mostly aimed uh, at Russia, the biggest defense bill you know, appropriations we've ever seen. Increased nuclear weapons capacity and modernized nuclear weapons. That's primarily aimed at Russia. At Europe to increase its defense spending, primarily aimed at Russia. Expelled 60 oh. Russian officials after the poisoning uh, in Britain. Crimea happened under Obama. The the meddling let's happened go through under the Obama. What did the Obama administration do let's that was tough? I'm not here to defend Obama, but I'm here okay. to actually joke. But here, we ought to actually... Not deal in hyperbole. Let's deal in facts. Wow, there's been the a lot only of hold up, but the only the only reason, the only reason that Trump put sanctions on Russia was because Congress said we don't trust you not to put sanctions, and they passed what was called CATSA that took away the president's authority okay. to walk away from those sanctions. Uh, on the question of defense spending, yes, we've spent over $700 billion on defense, highest ever. Russia spends about $70 billion. My fear is we're buying the world's best 20th century military, where Russia has decided in cyber and misinformation and disinformation to take conflict to us. And frankly, we need to step Senator, up our Senator, game. I love it when they get to cutting up rough because Congress had to make Trump keep the sanctions. 
We don't know what Donald Trump was going to do. They took a preemptive action to make sure that the president didn't walk away from the sanctions because he had done a little bit of tweeting in it that they didn't like. And that is their job. Okay, so I know nobody's going to get extra credit for doing their job. I do not get extra thanks for showing up here and doing a radio show every day. That, that is my job. Okay, so we we have to raise the bar a little bit here. Congress's job is to make sure that the they're supporting defending the Constitution of the United States, that they are taking actions legislatively that all further that aim. That's the bullseye target that they're hit. They're aiming for every single day. Every action they take is supposed to work towards that aim. If they think the president of the United States might be inclined to eliminate sanctions that they feel are critical to our geopolitical stance against another foreign entity, it is their job to do exactly what they did. No credit given, no extra credit. You get credit, no extra, nothing extra, not special, next. What else have they done? I'm, I'm glad to hear they got something right. Good. Now what? What else do they need to do? What they should be doing is engaging in, you know, the Heritage Foundation has these talks. And if you're in D.C. and you want to attend one of their talks, you just go on their website. You see what the next talk is. It's these experts. I mean, these people are brilliant. And you just sign up online. And then when you show up, you show your ID and sign in at the front desk, go through a little metal, metal detector and you can sit. And they often have on the breaks, they'll have little croissant sandwiches or hot coffee and tea. And you can drink those and you can go back in and you can sit and listen. And sometimes they're hugely attended because the person is a big name drawn. Other times it's just they happen almost every day, these briefings. And so what Congress could do is they could say, you know, maybe the president doesn't have what the clear understanding that we wish he would have on this issue. So let's get some leadership together from the House or Senate leadership. Let's organize a, a briefing session. Let's request some time with the president and let's have maybe two or three congressmen from leadership um, let's let's ask someone from the Democrat side, you know, let's make it bipartisan. Let's request some time with the president to have these meetings. Now, if the president wouldn't take time to sit and have this meeting and have this briefing to have this understanding that they're they're wanting him to have, then, you know, that's when you go to go to the podium, public shaming. We wanted President Trump to have this briefing. He wouldn't. You know, we we want him to understand this particular topic we feel like he needs an understanding on it he won't meet with us and i guarantee you they would get someone in the uh the the white house would sit down with them and have that briefing probably the president i mean let's not act like they don't have any tools at their disposal with which to get information to the president if they want him to have it so yes they took that action and that's great Warner, who is a former uh, obama administration official says i'm not here to defend obama's approach to russia he can't I'll tell you why he's not there to defend anything Obama did in the Russia relationship from the Obama administration because he can't defend it. He doesn't agree with it. He didn't like it. Nothing he could do about it. He couldn't influence President Obama, who only took his own counsel and that of Valerie Jarrett and his wife. And so the country just marched forward, limping along, letting Obama do whatever he wanted to do, letting Putin do whatever he wanted to do. What am I talking about? Crimea that they're trying to pin on Donald Trump, like that's his problem. What can he do about that now? Nothing. He can't do anything about it. So we're, there's a lot going on, a, a lot going on. And the Democrats know they don't have anything with the collusion thing. The minute Mueller forwarded over this indictment of the 12 Russians to our national security apparatus for investigation by them, he's basically admitting he's not going to go anywhere else with it. He didn't save it because he's building a case against these guys and he's preparing to go to trial. That's it. So now we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're closing the investigation into collusion. We didn't find sufficient evidence with which to bring charges against Donald Trump. Now, word on the street is that what happens is he keeps finding other things to investigate. And these other things are leading him closer and closer to the finances of President Trump, which do intersect with Russians because he did construction over there. And I feel like that's one of those ones where, you know, you got to you got to decide if you really want to dance with the devil. If Mueller decides to start cracking open Donald Trump's finances when he declined to look at the financial dealings of Hillary Clinton, then he's going to completely obliterate any of the trust that so many Republicans have placed in him to do an impartial investigation. 
And that comes on the heels of the testimony by Peter Strzok, where he wasn't asked about his text messages or why he wrote them. He was simply told, you're no longer on these cases. That's that's all going to play a role. Now, he may not care about that, but I think people observing will. That's going to stink. You know, it. look, investigate whatever you want. But if you decide to investigate Donald Trump's finances, the question is going to be, why didn't you look into Hillary Clinton's finances? She has many more interactions with the Russians on a larger scale. So you've got this report, and I don't have multiple sourcing on this. Um, usually I like to try to find some outside links from the blog or, or website that I find a story on to make sure that I can kind of say, okay, they can kind of follow the reporting, who originally reported the story. But it's worth noting that this was yesterday or, yeah, whatever, today's Tuesday. You, know, you guys know once we get to Wednesday or Tuesday, I start to lose what track of what day it is. This happens to me all the time on the show. Like I probably need one of those little things that says it's Wednesday to pop up on my computer. So over at Zero Hedge, they have the video of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and they're at the podiums and Vladimir Putin accuses Hillary Clinton of accepting 400 million in illegal Russian campaign contributions. He did this from the podium. Now, what are, what are you seeing in the news? If you're looking all over, the news about the Helsinki summit is all about Donald Trump being too nice to Putin, his treasonous behavior. Now he's right up there with uh, Pol Pot and, you know, the Nazis. I mean, these are, this is the kind of ridiculous comparison that's being made. Like people died at the press conference. Did anyone die? Did you die? No, no one died. Okay, so... No one was bombed. No one was uh, gassed or, or, you know, ethnically cleansed. It was just a press conference. Whether you liked it or not, it was just a press conference. So you got Putin accusing Hillary Clinton of accepting these $400 million in illegal Russian campaign contributions. And, you know, obviously I won't want to see some receipts. You know me. I want, you know, yes, did they get, okay, so show us an online trail of how the Russians donated the money to the campaign that went through. Remember when Obama was getting donations from foreign entities and the, then it became a news story and they were like, he has to give that money back. He raised over a billion dollars. And they were like, a lot of that comes from small campaign contributions from foreign countries. And we don't know if he's being influenced. And that's not the way our election processes work. And then it was this big scramble to try to figure out what of it was legal and what of it wouldn't fly. And so it's the same thing here. But $400 million? That's almost half of what she raised. That's a problem. And then for it not to be American media to break that story, for it to be Vladimir Putin, former head of the KGB and like all around bad dictator guy, calling Hillary Clinton on the carpet for receiving donations from his country, Mm, if this is true, oh my, oh my. So you've got, um, remember we discussed this on the show, we explained the Magnitsky Act um, and U.S. defector Bill Browder playing Congress with his personal fortune, helping to ignite a new Cold War. Um, I mean, if this is just like, this is the kind of stuff that they usually make Hollywood movies. Back when Hollywood used to make really great spy movies, this would be one of those like plot lines that would, really work well. So did she receive $400 million to her campaign from Russians? That question is so much more interesting and worthy of investigation by American reporters and our security apparatus than whether or not Donald Trump, a man who Russians barely knew colluded with them to materially impact votes and the U.S. presidential election, like which of those things sounds more probable to you? I know leftists tend to simultaneously say that Donald Trump is like the silliest person alive. He lacks intelligence. He's a Cheeto. He's this, he's that. They just hurl the most ridiculous high school insults. Sorry, high schoolers, because I know y'all have game with insults, but they, they, the, they're not even worthy of repetition, but then at the same moment, they also believe that he is an evil mastermind who's currently running all kinds of really complex schemes, including colluding with Russians on, you know, stealing the presidency instead of just admitting they lost. It's okay. You know, there's honor in saying I lost. I didn't get chosen. I wasn't the one. They didn't think I was the right tool for the job. I disagree, but they didn't pick me. 
There's honor in that. And, and I know there is because I've been in that situation before where I literally, I did everything within my human capability to earn my way into a job and they picked someone else. And then after you get done crying and moaning and telling your friend and praying and asking God, why, why didn't I get it? Then later you just realize for whatever reason, they didn't see it for me. I didn't win that. And it's so freeing when you can finally get to a place where you just admit whatever the circumstances, whatever the, uh, you know, the, the, the factors, they just, they just gave it to the other person. You're thinking in the back of your mind, there's a little you in the back of your mind jumping up and down yelling, it was mine, but they gave it to someone else. And that person's going to be back there jumping and yelling forever. You just have to silence them and move on. But it's so freeing to just say, I just didn't get it. I, it just wasn't me. And beyond that, and I know Hillary Clinton's not a practicing Christian and she doesn't, you know, pray to God and, and, and you know, get counsel from the Holy Spirit. I get that. But for those of us who do, when you can admit, I didn't get it, I didn't win, they didn't pick me, I wasn't the one, that opens you up to be where you are and to be effective where you are. And then later to see the path God had for you to something so much greater and so much better. And so I'm, t- I'm sharing that. It's like a little impromptu piece of key lime pie in the middle of this, you know, spaghetti sandwich that we're having here about the zero hedge story about Obama and not defending and then Hillary Clinton and the 400 million. I'm adding that in to just in this moment because you know, it hurts when we don't get picked for the job or the, the this or the that. Or, you know, when you find out you weren't the one who was chosen for whatever it was you were shooting for and you really worked hard and you, you put your all into it and you didn't get it. But God has plans for us and his plans are higher than our plans. His, his, he can see the end and he doesn't have to work his way back from there. It's not complex for him. He, this is what he does, working all things out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That's him. And so when we allow him to do that and when we can just admit I lost. I didn't get it. That then opens us up to walk into what he does have for us. And that's something that Hillary Clinton, I, she apparently is incapable of doing. And probably because she's not practicing Christianity. She's not praying. She's not submitting herself to God. She's not willing to admit the parts, the role that her actions played in preventing her from becoming the president of the United States. And I, I honestly believe, even with the interview we did last week, I honestly believe that that is not her role. She's not meant to be the president of the United States. That doesn't mean I'm not going to work to stop it and that I'm not going to, you know, pay as much attention as I can and do all that I can, you know, within the realm of what I can do to make sure that she's not the president of the United States. I would never vote for her. I would, I would tell others do not this. No, mm-mm, can't be. But it, the, the bondage that she's in right now with the angry face and running around telling people about how, you know, she didn't get to play full court basketball and she didn't get to do this and that and highlighting all of the ways she wasn't privileged when she was ultimately very, very privileged growing up, very, very blessed. Her circumstances were just, you know, many millions of kids around the country would have traded places with her in a heartbeat and never looked back and never complained had they had the opportunity to grow up the way she did and to get the education that she was able to get. But she's never going to be free of losing the presidency because she's, she's unable to say what I just said. I didn't get it. It wasn't me. And so, you know, this is one of those cautionary tales. Don't be like that. Don't be that person where you can't admit that you didn't get it. You, it wasn't you. It wasn't for you. Don't be that person. So well, it remains to be seen. And I'll be definitely looking for more corroboration on this. Obviously, the fact that Putin made this statement from the podium standing next to Donald Trump. He was lying about a whole bunch of other stuff. He might be lying about Hillary Clinton's campaign receiving $400 million from Russians. It could be a total fabrication on his part. But wouldn't it be great if our media apparatus, the reporters, the investigative guys who dig up all the dirt, quote unquote, on President Trump would take five seconds off of that and look into this? I would love it if they could show definitive evidence that it was either true or untrue. Because if it's true, wow, look at Putin. Or if it's not true, more proof that he likes to lie. I'm open to either result. So when we get back, we're going to talk about these young Republican staffers who were put out of an Uber ride at a gas station when the Uber driver figured out they were Republicans. And then he said, welcome to the resistance. We're going to talk about that when we get back. Stay there.
This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. Adopting children has made Psalm 139 come alive to Tony and me. Verses 15 and 16 say, You watched me as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. We've kept those verses in our heart for many years. We know God has created all of our children for His glory and for them to be a part of our family. And God knew before they were born that He would lend them to us to love and care for them here on earth. If you're considering adopting a child, read Psalm 139 and ask God to show you His plan. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. I'm Will Addison, director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32 it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time, to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for His service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. My name is Max. I'm 17. I thought meth would help me forget the anger I had towards my dad, but I ended up an angry drug addict. Thankfully, I came to Teen Challenge, and now I'm drug-free. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. There was a time where um, I was in the middle of doing something and the Lord just, just really impressed upon my heart that I needed to buy my wife some flowers. I hadn't thought about it, hadn't done it in a while. And I walked into the door of our, our little small apartment and I had the flowers in my hand and my wife's eyes connected with mine. Her eyes just well up with tears. And I immediately started thinking, what's wrong? What happened? What's going on? And uh, she said, Abe, <laughs> I've been wanting some flowers but I know what our financial situation is, and I didn't want to be an additional burden on you because I know things are tight now. And man, it was just a moment where my wife and I just fall more deeply in love with the Lord and more deeply in love with one another. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekday afternoons at 5 Central on Urban Family Talk. By relying on Him. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord. I thank you. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. A driver said he needed to stop and get gas. And then he, you know, quickly turned off and stopped the car and said, your ride has been terminated and you've reached your destination and I have the right to deny you service. And so we were all shocked and we politely got out of the vehicle and just, you know, said bye, have a good night. And then he drove off and said, welcome to the resistance. So this is what, we've, what it's come to. You hear people in the backseat of your, your car. Uh, and if you've taken an Uber before, you know. So, so if you take Uber Black or um, the, the very top line Uber, you pay a lot of money, but you get, uh, you know, an Escalade or a Yukon. You get an extended vehicle where you can literally sit in the second and third row and chat and the driver really can't hear you. There's also the issue of, so with Uber drivers, you can often get in the car and I've had an Uber driver like give me the side eye because I got in the back seat, but I'm paying for a ride. I'm not paying for like, you know, a 30 minute chat. I, and often when I'm taking Ubers, I'm out of town. I'm usually in DC or somewhere for work, New York. And so I'm not there to chat. I'm, I've got all kinds of stuff I'm trying to manage in between the one stop that I'm leaving and the next stop. And I'm often going from hit to hit to hit. It's like, you know, a, a just literally running around for hours until the end of the day where I can try to catch a little bit of food and then head back over to my parents' house if I'm, if I'm in the D.C. area or back to the hotel if I'm in New York. And so I've noticed that some of the drivers, they just treat it like a, a drive opportunity. They don't 
They make small talk when you first get in, but they kind of leave you to your own devices. They have some music on. They'll let you borrow their charger if your phone's almost dead, and they just take you where you need to go. Now, this situation that we're talking about here, you've got these young Republicans. They're, they've been out all evening, and they're, it's, it's late. It's after midnight. They get in the vehicle, and there's five of them. So it's a pretty good-sized vehicle because when you tell Uber, the app, how many people are riding, they only send you a driver that can accommodate the number of people that need to be picked up. So they start talking about politics. And apparently it wasn't a, you know, oh, the, you know, the Democrats are horrible type of thing. It was more of a, we did, we accomplished this, we accomplished that. And what we should do next is, you know, kind of like recapping their evening and, you know, congratulating themselves. And this upset the Uber driver. And so he said, I need to stop for gas. He pulls over at the gas station pretty abruptly and then asks them to get out. And then when he says, I'm, I'm not driving Trump supporters around in my car. And then they get out and then he says, welcome to the resistance and drives off. Now, what they do is Uber drivers can report you just like you can report an Uber driver. In the app, there's a place for you to give them um, like a rating and you can also submit comments and they can submit comments about you. And so what he did was he preemptively submitted comments saying, look, they, uh, they offended me with their conversation. And so the assumption there is that they're in the backseat cursing or maybe they're drunk or maybe, you know, there's something really unacceptable about it. Because when you drop someone off early, you're kind of saying you don't want the entire fare, right? You're saying it was bad enough for you to interrupt the fare and you're not going to get paid. And so here's the problem. It was the middle of the night. He dropped them off at a gas station, four women and one man. So clearly they're in a large enough group that, you know, they probably didn't have to worry about being mugged or anything. But if this is acceptable behavior for Uber drivers, then that means a single person who takes a phone call and it becomes apparent that they're a Republican or a Trump supporter, they could be put out on the side of the road or at a gas station alone with their bags coming from the airport. I mean, it really makes you wonder. So Uber is a fantastic service. And I love how they've got Uber drivers crawling all over the city like bugs. I mean, literally, when you look on the app to see how many cars are near you, if you're in D.C., there's always at least 10 cars nearby within a block of you where you can just you click and they send them to you. And so you get this ride. It's very reasonably priced and you get to ride in a car instead of a taxi cab because the taxi cabs are so nasty. But taxi cab drivers aren't allowed to put you out if you just happen to be a Trump supporter. Like they have rules. And if Uber is a leftist company that plans on allowing their drivers to do that, then women, people riding alone, and anyone riding at night, you're not safe to drive Uber. So it changes the dynamic. Now, one of the congressmen who heard about the story, I don't remember his name, sent a tweet saying he would put um, $100 lift certificates to every single one of the ones who were put out of this car ride. And, you know, I think that's great. But it's not like Lyft is conservative. Like, Businesses aren't supposed to be a political ideology. At least you don't think they're supposed to be one. I know, you know, um, Chick-fil-A is supposed to be conservative. And, um, and I, I, I believe the company is pretty conservative. And, and the owner of Chick-fil-A, you know, supports traditional marriage, etc. But Chick-fil-A doesn't put people out of the restaurant. When, when two people of the same sex come in and start you know, basically giving each other mouth to mouth resuscitation at a table, the Chick-fil-A workers come over and they bring them a cup of water and say, um, let us know if you'd like to order any food. Thanks for coming to Chick-fil-A. That was their response to the kiss-ins that the homosexual movement uh, launched against their company. They didn't throw anybody out. They just said, hey, thanks for coming in. Um, we have water for you. And if you, if you want to order any food, please do come up and order something. Let us know what you'd like. Now, I'm not so sure I would have that same reaction to two people coming into my business to take up space to, so that they could have a vulgar display of their affection for each other. But that's what they did. Every time people are given the opportunity to kind of show who they are, it seems like the Democrats are showing us something that isn't workable for our society. And I just think it's it's unacceptable. And no one wants to be treated like that. You get put out of the car on the side of the road at a gas station in the middle of the night and you're a half an hour from civilization. So you got to wait there for a half an hour at the gas station. 
for somebody to come pick you up to complete your ride? Come on. Did, you know, is this who we are? Like Barack Obama likes to say, you know, he loves to say that. Is this who we are? I mean, I guess so. He's still out there talking too. It's not missed by me or anybody else who can remember anything that George Bush didn't say anything against him when he was the president and George Bush was the outgoing guy. And Barack Obama can't seem to sit down or find his way to a vacation spot without approaching a podium and bad-mouthing the president. Even doing it kind of like Shade Brigade, he's sub-bad commenting the president by not saying his name but making sure everybody knows exactly. So, in the gun front, Second Amendment update type stuff, you've got a growing phenomenon in the land of Lincoln this year. A bunch of cities and counties are approving sanctuary status for guns. In other words, they're saying these weird pieces of legislation that are coming out of Chicago and the, the seat of power in Illinois, that they're not going to put up with that drama. There are actually 26, I believe, counties in Illinois who have passed. Actually, it's more than that. Mercer County Board unanimously approved a measure to make the county the 30th gun sanctuary county in Illinois. Um, They want to tell the state, this is Mercer County Board member Brian Ansu. He's a Republican from New Windsor, Illinois. He says, we're telling the state that they cannot pass laws that impinge on our Second Amendment rights, which is pretty awesome. Of course, these laws are described as largely symbolic because counties and cities across the state have moved since March to declare their local region a sanctuary for gun owners, starting with the Iroquois County Board. And this came as a grassroots backlash against a package of gun control bills ranging from restricting those under age 21 to purchasing guns from purchasing guns and bans on bump stocks and various licensing schemes for gun dealers that have seen success in the state legislature. So there are 102 counties um, in the state of Illinois, and almost a third of them have doubled down on their support of gun rights. And I just think it's fantastic. Even if it's largely symbolic, it kind of sends a message to the state legislature to let them know, you, y'all can pass whatever you want to, but we're, we're believers in the Second Amendment down here. And we do need to protect our right to keep and bear arms. It's important. And there's going to be you know, other opportunities for us to see where people stand on this coming up with the votes, uh, Supreme Court vote and the primaries. We have primaries here in um, in Missouri in August. Um, so people should get informed and vote. And also then, of course, there's the midterm in November. Get informed, vote. I recommend that people actually get the party platforms. And I'm going to pull this right here. I, I've have it right here in my folder for the show. Um, A comparison of the 2016 Republican and Democratic Party platforms. It's at votinginfo.net. So you can print it off. See, it it has both on here. And it has on one side the key issues of sex education, Obamacare, marriage, medical research, Iran, and foreign assistance. And these are all areas in the both party platforms that these, these subjects are addressed. And then on the other side, the key issues are human life, Planned Parenthood, judges, religious liberty, climate change, global warming, and education and school choice. And these subjects are covered in both the Republican and Democratic Party platforms. And then you can compare them because it's little summaries here. And then you can kind of decide, okay, which of these party platforms more closely aligns with my worldview and what I believe and what I would like to pay for and support with my tax dollars. And then that can help you to make choices uh, on from who's on the ballot. And the reason I say it like that is obviously I'm, you know, Stacy on the right, I'm on the political right, but this is a decision that I, it's not like I just woke up one day and said, hi, I think I'm going to be Stacy on the right. No, I spent time studying the party platforms. Only I was doing that back when the Democrats were still kind of like, you know, Democrats, <laughs> <laughs> and and I was also comparing with what like our pastors preaching and teaching and I was listening to some Christian radio which you know oddly enough here it is a little over 10 years later no more like 15 years later and I'm actually on Christian radio talking about this stuff so wow what a, what a circle of events um I had to make the decision for myself and I did it I wanted to do it from 
information instead of my emotions. I didn't want to just, so the knee jerk is, are, is this party racist or is that party racist? Well, that doesn't really address the economics. That doesn't address all the different factors that we as Americans, we're living our lives all day long. It, it's more than just whether or not we have a permanent tan. And in the big scheme of things, you know, Christian radio, we need to be really brutally honest here because it's eternity that we're working towards, that we want to be found rightly working out our salvation when the Lord returns. So that means he'll find us, as the Bible says, in the fields working, that we'll be working out our salvation, yes, but also working on what he's called us to do, of course, glorify God um, in all that we do, but discipling others, bringing others to the Lord, and and helping our fellow man, putting our money and our resources in the places that God tells us to put them. And a part of all of that is rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, which means we can't make the decision based solely upon an emotional response to one candidate or another or one issue or another. It has to be rooted and grounded in what one party will do versus what the other party will do because we're going to be held to account for that. And who wants to be held to account for things that you don't believe in? Excuse me. You don't want to be held to account for things that you disagree with, but you were, you know, agreeing with them with your vote because of racism. Remember, the Bible doesn't even acknowledge any of that. It talks about where people were from. It talks just a hair about their physical characteristics, but mostly it talked about what they were like as people. They're the described that, you know, he was a man after God's own heart, or, you know, he was a man who prayed and his prayers were answered. Those types of things, uh, you know, that Mary said she, that she was sweet and said to the angel of the Lord who told her she was going to be pregnant and which meant ostracized. And really it was the destruction of her reputation. And she was a virtue. And she said, be it unto me as you have described. Wow. Just think about that. You want, you, you've been told by an angel of God that you're going to have your reputation destroyed and you're going to carry a baby and you've never known a man. You know, this is going to bring shame upon your family and your husband that you're betrothed to is going to like, what are you going to say to him? An angel told me I was going to get pregnant. Seriously. <laughs> and instead of questioning, I think I would have had questions. Y'all know me. I'd have been like, so how's that going to work? When is this going to happen? How many more? Do I have days? Do I have an hour? What's going to happen? And also, do I have a choice? Am I allowed to say no here? I need to think this through. I'd like some time. Can I have some time to just mull this over? That would have been me. <laughs> Instead, she's like... Be it unto me as you have said. Come on, y'all. This is not about race. This is about something so much bigger. It takes information. And it's out there. All we have to do is seek it out. And then pray. And then go forward with confidence. Following what God has asked us to do. All right, that's the show for today. Thank you for being here. We will be back with you tomorrow with more news and information, culture, politics, all of it from the Christian perspective on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.